Our Lord is faithful. And for that we were glad. And today we are going to see another reason why we're glad that God is faithful. If I was to take you today, this morning, for our service to the country of Laos, or maybe Pakistan, Iran, or even China, we would see a quite different scene than what we are seeing in this building today. In China, we could see a church standing, praising the Lord in song, but instead of their pastor coming to preach, we see another man having to stand to preach because their pastor has been placed in jail for preaching the Word of God. In Iran, we see people singing, but some that cannot stand because this past week they were beaten for their faith, for not following the state religion to worship Allah. In Pakistan, we see an impoverished family still praising the Lord, but having to rely on their church for just their basic needs to survive. In Laos, we see weeping because a leader in the church was murdered, martyred this week for their faith. Yes, through all of this, though, we still see the church meeting. We still see the church in the Word of God, and it is being proclaimed. We still see Christians praising the Lord in song for all that He has done for them and for who He is. Because as Ali sang, He is faithful. Now this is not new. As we go through the history of the church, this has been seen in places around the world. Persecution is real in the church. During those times of persecution is when we saw the greatest growth in the church. We also saw the purity of the church at that time. In our look at the seven churches of Revelation, we come today to the persecuted church of Smyrna, the second church mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Smyrna was uh, another seaport, just like Ephesus. It is uh, 35 miles north of where Ephesus was, and it is one of the only cities of the seven that are mentioned here that's still around today. If you were to go to Turkey today, to the city of Izmir, that is Smyrna, the third largest city in Turkey. Smyrna was known for its great wealth. It was known as the glory of Asia, is its title. And as you entered that seaport, it would continue to rise up and up and up until you got to Mount Pegasus. The city had been in demise for a while, and it was reestablished in the 4th century B.C. by none other than Alexander the Great. And when he built this city, he built it to be the model Greek city for Asia. The, the way the streets were laid out and how wide they were and expansive and straight and how they, they would turn at 90 degree angles similar to how our streets are structured. Well, not on the west side, but how they are typically downtown. Its layout was that way. The temples were there, how he wanted them, the gymnasiums, the entertainment, and on and on it went. There was one street that started at the seaport and it went all the way up straight through the middle of the city until you got to the Acropolis at Mount Pegasus. And this was called the Golden Street. And as you went along the Golden Street, on each side of the Golden Street, you would see temples to their gods 
Apollo, Aphrodite, even one to the man Homer, who was apparently born, who they claimed he was born there. And finally, at the end, the temple to Zeus, or Jupiter. The city was also known as one of the first cities in Asia to accept and to make prominent the, the worship of Caesar. And that's going to be prevalent here today. They were given the right by Rome to self-govern, and they called themselves the first in all of the cities of Asia. The first in all the cities of Asia. Now, Smyrna is an interesting name. Smyrna means myrrh. Now, what is myrrh? Myrrh is that resin, that, uh, that aromatic resin that we saw given by the three wise men or by the wise men when they came at Christ's birth. One of the three gifts given by those magi. The same resin we see at the end at Christ's death as they wrapped him for his burial. Myrrh is this perfume, a perfumed resin that was used in embalming. And Smyrna was known to traffic in that, the commerce of that city. They, tra- they, they said that they trafficked so much in that that the city actually smelled like myrrh. And many historians believe that is probably the reason for its name of Smyrna. Now, I don't believe it's a mistake that this herb that is acquired by crushing it to gain its aromatic smell, this beautiful fragrance, is also what we see here in the church that we're going to look at that was crushed for their, in their suffering and in their trials and in their martyrdom and the beauty of who they were as a church. We see here the picture of the bridegroom, the church. Psalm 45, 8 tells us that the garment of the bridegroom will smell of myrrh. So let us read together this letter today in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and it is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, we ask you to open our hearts and uh, for those that have uh, suffered persecution or as we see it approaching in our society today, that we would learn from your word and that we would apply it into our lives. If there are any that don't know Christ as their Savior today, that as they hear of the persecuted church and wonder, dear Heavenly Father, why would they ever want to follow you for that? That they would see your love, your faithfulness, your compassion on us that will, will last for eternity and not just for the moments that we have here on this earth today. Dear Heavenly Father, we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look through this today, we see this church in Smyrna, and I want us to see first what Christ sees. What Christ sees when he looks at the church in Smyrna. 
All too often, I believe, in America today, we present the gospel as this Pollyanna version of what Christianity is truly. Uh, we, we come across as if you accept Christ as your Savior, life will be perfect. All problems will end in your life. But that's not what we see. There is pain. There are struggles that come along. There are needs. This has never been the case. In fact, Christ instructs us to take up our cross and follow Him. In Philippians 1.29, it says, For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Jesus Himself tells us in John 15.20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, what? They will also persecute you. We should expect that. We don't see that in America, but around the world, it is being seen. And it is, it is understood. It is in this understanding, then, that we find in the, in the church of Smyrna a roughed-up people. They've been beaten. They've, been, they've lost their jobs. And he tells us some things he knows about them. It, we see what Christ sees in them and what Christ has seen happen to them. The first thing is their persecution. He's seen their persecution. He says, I know thy tribulation. The tribulation that was used to, the, to pressure them to conform to society. See, persecution purifies the church. They meant it to get them in line but God will allow it to come about so it purifies the church. It purifies us individually and it purifies us as a church. A person that's not true to the faith is not going to go through persecution. They're going to look at that and they're going to split. The price tag is going to become too high and they will be not willing to pay that price. One author said it this way, persecution does not make martyrs, it reveals martyrs. And how true that is. We have little understanding here in America of persecution for our faith. And I don't say that as I wish it was coming. Not at all. But it would come as a major shock to most Americans when, when they would be persecuted for their faith. Now, I praise the Lord for our freedom of faith here in the United States. But it has caused us, I would say, to become weak in our faith. As I mentioned, the nations at the beginning of the sermon of Laos and China, you could add North Korea and any of the Middle Eastern countries to that, persecution is prevalent. When a, when a person comes to, to accept Christ as their Savior, it is understood to them that they're going to be ostracized for their faith. There is going to be a potential for persecution in their life. So then when it comes to the natural things, the ideas of serving the Lord and sacrificing the, for the Lord, that's sort of a no-brainer. It's not this thought of, well, if I feel like it, I'm going to do that. Or uh, if it's convenient for me today to serve the Lord, then, then I'll do that. No, they've already paid the price to be a Christian. It is their identity. And I've harped on this many, many times. As Christians in America today, you're not an American first. You are a Christian. It is our identity. 
And in that, it should determine our, the directions we go in our life. And if persecution comes, we have to ask ourselves, will we remain? And I pray that we have the strength and courage in our faith and our, and our reliance on the Lord to do so. What is your identity? What is your identity? They, he knew their, their persecution. Secondly, we see here, he says, I know thy poverty. Thy poverty. Being a Christian means that we, there are some things we just won't do. And it was causing the, the Christians in Smyrna the, that it, it affected them in society. It led to their poverty. We see three of them here. For, the, for one, they wouldn't bow down to graven images. Remember that street golden I was telling you about? I mean, it was easy to see a false god. I mean, they made figurines of them. They were everywhere. And these Christians were different. They were almost looked at as, I think uh, Brother Scott mentioned this uh, when he was teaching, they almost looked as atheists because they weren't bowing down to the many gods. But they were bowing down to the true God. And in a city that was lined with these false gods, that was noticed. And it went on then to their jobs because this was a city known for commerce. This is how they made items that could be sold and could be traded around the world. And most of the commerce were produced by guilds. That's not a word we really use anymore. We would use a, like a union shop today. You know, the electricians or the pipe fitters or, or whatever it might be. But to work in one of the guilds meant each guild had a patron god to which they worshipped, to which they bowed down to. So the meaning to be part of that, you were going to follow in, fall in line with that. So if you do not bow down to them, if you refuse to do that, you're not permitted to work in the guild. Wow. Wow. Well, where do you get your work? How, how, would, how do you survive? Put yourself there. These aren't remote people. These are real people. How do you, how do you survive? In fact, when it uses the word poverty here, this is a word that means outright desolate poverty. Not just like, I don't have the newest thing or I have to wait for a year to get this. No, I need to survive. I need food for the table so my family doesn't starve. That's a real decision. But it went one step further. As we look at this, imagine your union, your corporation that you work for, your cooperation required you to bow down to some thought pattern contrary to God. Hmm? Is that happening? Definitely. Or in place of God. Might not have gotten that far yet. And if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. You say, wow, that would never happen. That would never happen in America. But it goes one step further, as I said. It wasn't just because they didn't bow down to the God or the patron of that guild. It also, if you remember, I said that this was one of the first cities in Asia to worship Caesar. Now, this was done for a reason. This wasn't just because he was arrogant, which I'm sure they, they were, who knows. But what started as voluntary as a thing to help bring together the entire Roman Empire under one, one 
thought patterns where they were all moving forward together. Now, by this time, it had become mandatory. You had to worship Caesar. And once a year, they would go into the, to the temple to Caesar and they would bow and they would take a pinch of incense and burn it on the fire right inside of the bus, right in front of the bust of Caesar. And when they did that, they would receive a certificate that looked something like this. They actually had this passport, certificate, whatever you want to call it. And if they didn't have that, it would start to diminish the opportunities that they would have in their, in their life. And when they bowed down and did that, they actually had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, Rome didn't care if they went ahead after worshiping and saying Caesar is Lord to go across the street to the temple to Aphrodite or up the street to the temple of Zeus and, and praise Him. They wouldn't even care if you went into your church and praised Jesus Christ. But you had to do that first. Now, Rome had, been, had used this as an effort to bring the Roman peace the people saw the empire and they, they thought it was good because it was the, the Roman Empire had brought civility and peace to their life. They gladly submitted to this request for the most part because before the union, there wasn't peace. They were, they were controlled by these small regional leaders. There was no consistency. There was no uh, fairness in the trials that went on and they were not safe. Rome comes along and they build these massive streets and they build cities and a road system that allows them to have their commerce go back and forth. And what happens when you can do that? Money, money, money. Right? So their wealth was starting to grow, a consistent judicial system, and on and on it went. So then when these Christians come in and they will not bow down and say Caesar is Lord, they're looked at as traitors to the empire. They're looked at as an enemy of the state. That's a problem. To not make the sacrifice, these Christians were shutting themselves out of society and the ability to make an income for their family, poverty had hit them. Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Just bow your knee and go on. You know you don't mean it anyway, and, and go serve the Lord. The problem is, Jesus Christ is not one of many. He is the only Lord. Tonight we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 5 says this, But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the way, the only way. And we don't add Him onto a list of others. When uh, we, years ago, had an opportunity to go to Gallup, New Mexico for a mission trip to the Navajo Indians, um, Brother Ferris was quick to point out to us, you need to take your time when you share the gospel with folks. Because what will happen is they'll say, well, yeah, I'll accept Jesus Christ and I'll just add him onto the pile of all the other gods that I believe in. It took time for them to realize the one, the true God, Jesus Christ. And when we confuse this in our mind, you say, well, the first person does this, and ah, I didn't believe it anyway. Your child sees you. They don't understand that. Jesus is the only true God. 
You might be even thinking, well, I'm glad I don't live like this. I'm glad I don't, didn't live then. Well, we need to open our eyes. We need to see what's going on around us. Because what seemed impossible a decade ago is definitely possible today. Easily seen. The cancel culture that is around is not just a news story. It's not going away. The pressure to conform to the world is no different. We are to fall in line with society, and it is ever-increasing. Your corporation most likely has brought in a DEI uh, person in, in the company, a diversity, equity, and inclusion department. And it's on the rise in corporations that you need to fall in line with this. Opportunities in your life where everything was based on merit are disappearing, and they're disappearing quickly. Even our retirement investments are being used in, in this way. These large investment firms that aren't held, aren't held to a country because they control trillions and trillions of dollars are making decisions based on agendas that are out of line with the Word of God. We're truly only one or two laws away in most states and in the country from being faced with a very similar situation. Michigan right now has a, has a law that has passed the, the, the House. It has not passed the Senate yet to where it is a hate crime if you make someone feel uncomfortable and they can report you. Well, I can guarantee almost every pastor in that state, if that passes, is going to be in jail at some point if they're preaching the Word of God. Even in love. It made a person feel uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable when you, when you tell me about my sin. When you, when you say that Jesus is the only truth, you will be seen as bigoted, you will be seen as intolerant by the people that are intolerant of your view, <laughs> but that's another story. And it will begin to hinder your opportunities. It will begin to hinder the support for your family. But Jesus stops there. This is interesting. Jesus stops and, you know, this is terrible as you're thinking about this, and he stops and he says, but thou art rich but thou art rich. In their poverty, they are actually rich. What are they rich in? Eternal things. You say, ah, that's... No, no, no. Yeah, you might not have them now, but you actually do have many of them now. We will have these for eternity. I'm only here for a few moments. I'm with the Lord for eternity. And he says, thou art rich. As a follower of Christ, we are rich in the things that we cannot buy with the wealth of this world. We also have the ability to take them with us where the things of this world you only have for a few moments until you die. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. It's interesting. You may be here today with all the world has to give. You may consider yourself rich in the eyes of this world and in your own eyes, but today, if you have nothing spiritually, you have nothing that will last for eternity. Then Christian, you look at yourself and your cupboard's bare. Your car barely limped to church today. You're living paycheck to paycheck if you can even do that. But you need to realize that you have everything spiritually. A home in heaven. You have eternal security. You are a child of the King. You have real peace, real joy, and the list goes on 
and on and on. I will take that every day. Real wealth has everything to do with God. Ask yourself today, where is the source of your wealth? Where is the source of your wealth? Well, it didn't end with persecution and poverty. Jesus also sees their persecution, or prosecution, pardon me. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. We see here uh, an interesting thing that we don't see so much today. It was the slander of the Jews of the land. And to compound the church's problems, the Jewish people in Smyrna were being turned over to the government by, by them. Now, many people think the Jews were just trying to uh, protect themselves. The Jews had a special exemption with the Roman Empire that they didn't have to, uh, they didn't have to bow down to Caesar. And now they see these Christians that are seen as a sect of the Jews in the world's eyes, and they see them denying all, to bow down to this and to follow in line and to do all these other things that apparently the Jews were willing to do. And they look at that and they're like, our exemptions, maybe we, we got a problem here. We might lose this exemption. On top of that, obviously, their hatred toward the faith in Jesus Christ. And they turn them in. Well, Jesus states they weren't Jews. He says they were being used as tools of Satan. Romans 2.29 says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Those folks. Neither that is circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. These weren't, these weren't people that were actually following Jesus Christ. And, God, and Jesus says they're not Jews. They're just outwardly Jews. Now, I say all of that to, to now come to this, this crux of the matter. It is in this point that Jesus says to them, I know. I know. It, it, it wasn't a, I know because I, I heard about what happened to you, and I'm really sad, and uh, I'll be praying for you. It wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't, I know, because I, I watched from afar what was happening to you. Because if we read back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he shows us that Jesus walks in the midst of the churches. He was walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks, which we saw were, were the churches. And in verse 8 it says, Jesus begins his letter by telling them, These things, saith me, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Jesus was making it clear to them, I know, I know, I am the first. Before anything was, I was. Now remember, this city was the first of the cities in Asia. There's a little play on that, I believe. But he says, I am the first, and he says, I am the last. When everything is done, I will still be here. I was there at the beginning, I'm at the end, and I am there throughout all of time. He says, I know, and I've seen this. I was dead. I have suffered what you have suffered. I have experienced what you have experienced. I've experienced shame. I've experienced mockery. I've experienced destitution. I have been betrayed by my closest friends. I know what you are going through by experience. And I know because I am in the midst of you right now. I was dead and I'm alive. 
It speaks of Christ's crucifixion for our sake and then His glorious resurrection. Jesus died, but He conquered death. Amen? And the Christians knew they were going to rise again as well. The resurrection that comes with that. And this knowledge of knowing that Jesus Christ was resurrected does more than just give us a surety that when we die, we will be with the Lord. It also then gives us confidence that while we're living today, we can have courage to follow the Lord. And that's quite a different thing, is it not? We can have courage as we go through this. Paul calls this in Philippians the power of his resurrection. That's a power in our life, not just to raise us when we're dead, but also as we live this life, knowing that nothing can harm us because we will be with the Lord. He said, I know thy, and he says over and over again, thy is the singular word there. He knows what you are personally going through. He knows personally what this church was suffering for his name's sake. That's important. We know this because Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is our high priest. He carries us upon His heart and upon upon His shoulders before His heavenly Father. He knows. He knows. And He, more than anyone can, cares. Jesus Christ knows. He saw their persecution. We see secondly, he, and don't worry, the first point was the majority of the sermon. Don't get nervous. What Christ sees, and then he quickly goes on in verse 10 to tell them what the Christians were going to suffer. Now you would think after verse, this encouragement from verse 9 that the, the, the rest of the sermon, I'm going to give you some more encouragement. That's not what he does. In fact, he gives them a warning. The next part's a warning to them. And he tells them there in, in verse 10, For none of the, fear none of those which shall, thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and that ye may have tribulation ten days. He says to them there that you will be tried. They're, they're going to throw you into prison. You're going to be tried for this. And, and Christ says the devil is the one that's going to be throwing you into prison. Why? Well, Satan was hoping that the same thing that he, he tried with Job was going to happen to them, that, that the pressure on them was going to cause them to crack and that their testimony would be ruined. But God uses that same trial in their life to show the onlookers of the glory of Him and the witness that they have for Him. This week's growth group, uh, we read the verse, Psalm 76.10, that says this, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. What? The wrath of man shall praise thee? The remainder of wrath shall thou restrain. And God was pointing out to the psalmist there and to us today that even in man's wrath, God can use it for His glory. He can use it to point people to Christ, to bring praise to Him, because He is the one that controls the level to which it can go. He, he is the one that then can limit it. In the, he's the one that says there, that can restrain it. He's the one that has His handle on the knob. They were being tried, and He also says they were going to be tempered. 
As you see, he says, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Now, there's a lot of thought about what those ten days meant. Uh, some people think it's symbolic and it represented ten phases of, of persecution that were going to happen to the church. Uh, in the Fox's Book of Martyr, he, he lists ten distinct periods of prosec- uh, persecution we know that the persecution will continue on till into the early 300s when Constantine comes about, which is we'll talk about later. Then other people think it's a literal 10 days. That Smyrna was known for possibly its gladiator games, and there were going to be 10 days of trials. It really doesn't matter if it was literal or symbolic. What does matter is that God was the one that put the limit on it. God was the one that said it's only going to last 10 days. No further. And as we go through fires of trial in our life, God will begin to temper us, but He is the one that is in control. He is the one that is the refiner, that is purifying us. And Christian suffering, I love this quote by Walford, says, is designed by an infinitely wise and loving God for our good, as well for the, be- for the better of the testimony of the gospel. When we are tried, when it does happen, the impurities of our life are taken out. And if we will allow Him, we will shine brighter and brighter for Him. And Jesus says at the end of this to stay faithful, even to death. Look past Christians in Smyrna, Christians here in Cincinnati. Look past what is happening right now in your life the persecution, the turmoil that's come in your life, look past that, even to death. Why? Because we see here what the Lord supplies in verses 10, the end of 10 and 11. He's going to supply what He says, a crown of life. Now you might be thinking here today, why in the world would I ever want to become a Christian? This sounds like the worst deal ever in my life. The world has promised you That if you fall in line, they're going to give you a lot. They're going to give you some material possessions. You might get some fame. You might get all those things. But I can guarantee this, they will all fade away. And when you die, you will spend eternity separated from God in a real place called the lake of fire. But we see Jesus says, as you struggle, as you struggle, He knew their struggles. He knew their experiences. And he says, don't let that, he says, stay strong here. And I will give you the crown of life. He gives them the ultimate hope here. A change of perspective on how we're to live our lives. How can we live in tribulation like this? He gives them life. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give you thee a crown of life. Smyrna, I want you to know that as you suffer in this short life, that I will bring you and give you a crown of life, eternal life in heaven. It reminds me of the, uh, the famous quote from Jim Elliot, who said, He is no fool who, can, who gives that what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me repeat that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We can give ourselves to God's service because our future is secure. Jesus has set the way and our future is secure. Our real life begins at that point. 
Because we're only passing through here for that moment in time. It is a blink of the eye and our life is over. I don't care if you're 16 years old or if you're, if you're 106 years old, it still feels like a moment of time. Anyone that's older now will look back and say, I can't even remember that. It just went by that quickly. All the things that you can gain in this world, but God has made it a way to where we have eternity with Him. And let our vision be toward eternity. Because He then tells us in the last verse, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. It's more than life. It is liberation for how we live our lives today. A a liberation to know this is as bad as it gets here on this earth. As a Christian, this is it. And at death, we will not be in hell. We will not have the second death. We will be with the Lord. But the person that has not accepted Jesus Christ, has denied His his saving grace, they will be a person that has lived it up here, but they will both die physically and spiritually. The second death is the spiritual death. Separated from God for eternity in a real place called the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is liberation knowing that we have eternal life and that we have escaped death. Chriswell says, The man of the world lives to die, but the man of Christ dies to live. May we keep our perspective on eternity, knowing that Christ is with us. And my prayer is, as trials come in my life, that I will have the faith to live for Christ. Not just to die for Christ, because that's a one and done. To live for Christ is the difficult part. Well, I have the courage to do that. And Christian brothers and sisters, I ask you today, are we more interested about being accepted by those around us in this society than following the Lord? Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Him? Is Christ exclusive in your faith? Or have we bowed our head and compromised to others? As trials come, purification is coming. It's not a maybe. Decisions will be required. Following the Apostle John as pastor in Smyrna, his disciple or his student Polycarp uh, became pastor there. He lived in the circumstances we've just read about in Smyrna. It was a high festive day there and many people were in the city and Uh, the Jewish population decided to take advantage of this excited group and they started to accuse the Christians and they, they led them to Polycarp. And they said, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of the gods, who teaches neither to offer sacrifice nor to worship. Polycarp was then dragged before the proconsul of, of the city and was given a choice. Proconsul said, if you will say, Kaiser Curie, Caesar is Lord, you can have your liberty. But if you say Jesus is Lord, it means death. 
Polycarp refused to do so, and they then drug him out of that proconsul's chamber and took him to the Hippodrome, and they, he said to him once again, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp, now the age of around 100, said, 86 years have I served the Lord, and He never did me harm. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend to not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. The proconsul looked at him and says, I have wild beasts at hand. To them will I cast you, except you change. He threatened him more and he says, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts if you will not change. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. This is the point. You burn me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarry you? Bring forth what you will. Then, on the Sabbath day, led by the Jews, let that sink in, they gathered the wood, and the Jews of the city put the wood around Polycarp. And as this godly, elderly servant of God burned, he cried out, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this death and of this hour, and that I may receive a portion in the number of your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. If you would bow your heads. This is a humbling letter. This is a letter of contemplation for us as Christians. We have a church that chooses to serve the Lord. But we need to be ready. What will you do when persecution comes? Will we compromise? Or will we stand strong, keeping our perspective, knowing that eternity is just moments away? I want to encourage you to be strong. Lean on the Lord, knowing He is faithful and He sees. For those of you that aren't Christians, what are you living for? The things that are just going to last for moments, and then you will die and be separated from the Lord for eternity. But God loved you. It says, but God commended His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Accept Christ today. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with this congregation. Be with us individually and let us search our heart. As you spoke to the church in Smyrna, it wasn't just to them, but it was for people of all time that the church would know and know how to stand boldly. Help us to realize that you are the first and the last. That you were dead and that you are alive today. And through your resurrection, we have power to live today 
and we have an eternity to look forward to. Please convict those that are lost that they would come to know Christ today. Be with us now in Jesus' name.